We are in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is God's word. Um, so we've been in this series over the last uh, few weeks looking at different questions that God asked people in the Old Testament, and we've been operating from this, this place of saying, or this premise, that God doesn't uh, need answers to his questions. He wouldn't be much of a God if he did, right? Uh, he's asking the question for the benefit of the person that he's asking the question to. And he's asking him that question because he's trying to get them to see, maybe through that question, through that interaction, really their current condition, kind of where they're at, their state, their situation. He's trying to bring revelation to them about them, right? And he's also trying to bring revelation to them about how I'm going to choose to meet you in that place. So I'm not just revealing to you, you, but I'm, I'm revealing to you, how am I going to meet you in this place? And this question is trying to drive them to see his heart for them in their condition, all right? So this question that comes to Isaiah the prophet, um, whom shall I send, is very much what we just said. This is the case, because you could argue that Isaiah uh, was probably, if there was a prophet power ranking, right? Some of you are starting to get your fantasy football team together. He's your quarterback prophet, right? He's the guy you want to go after. He was the, probably the most influential, like important prophet in all of the Old Testament, and probably prophesied more clearly than anybody about the coming Messiah. He's the one who at Christmas time we read from Isaiah 9, you know, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, you know, and the government will be upon his shoulders, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty father, ever, or mighty father, everlasting father, you know, prince of peace. He saw Jesus clearly for who he was, right? He saw the coming Messiah and he prophesied about that. That was his job. What Treva just read for us was the beginning of his prophetic career, right? It was his call or commissioning by the Lord. He was being sent on mission to this unique role of being prophet to the people Israel, being sent by God to his people with God's word for his people because that's what a prophet did, right? The role of the prophet was to speak on behalf of the Lord, to be a mouthpiece for God, right? And I just want to say this before we get into the text. No one signed up for this job. Nobody. Because that's, it's kind of, it may be lost on us at the moment, but 
When we see him saying, here I am, send me, that was not a normal response for anybody when God was calling them into doing something, right? That was not a normal response. No one signed up for this job. It wasn't great comp and Benny, right, with a a signing bonus that came with it. This was a rough job, right? Because prophets oftentimes, what they were called to do by God was they were called to go talk to a group of people, Israel, and tell them things about them and tell them things about God, tell them truth, and they weren't going to be received. Like, even to their own detriment, I, I'm going to send you, God would often have this conversation with a prophet, I'm sending you to talk to these people, hey, they're not going to listen to you, but I want you to go tell them what I'm telling you to tell them anyways. Have a great time, right? I mean, no, it's not something that you just naturally get excited about. And the point is this, that, that people didn't choose to be prophets. God chose prophets. God gave the prophets what they were to say, and God sent the prophets where he wanted to send the prophets. It was all on God. So why does God ask questions like, whom shall I send to Isaiah? You follow? If he's king and he knows exactly what he wants to be said and he knows exactly where he wants to send him and he's picked him for the role, why would he ask him that question? Well, to understand the significance of that for Isaiah and really I'm hoping for us this morning, we have to look at what transpires before he asks the question. What was this experience of the Lord that Isaiah had before God slid that question and said, whom shall I send for us? if we're going to get the weight of this. So three things. Emily reminded me the other day, I like it when you tell us what you're going to tell us. It's helpful because sometimes I can be all over the place. So three things, seeing the king, saved by the king, and then finally sent by the king. That's the process we see happen for Isaiah here. And I'm going to wager and encourage us that maybe the process we need to go through too. I have to see the king I have to be saved by the king, and then finally, I might be ready to be sent by the king, okay? So Isaiah says there in the first verse, and he says it again in verse 5, I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on his throne. Or in verse 5, he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah, before this, I mean, he had had experiences of the Lord. He had heard from the Lord. He had had visions of different things prior to this. But what's really important is, as Isaiah is saying, in this moment, something like totally different is happening. Not just me hearing from the Lord, having some kind of vague sense or experience or even a vision or a dream. I am seeing God for who he is, clearly. I'm seeing the Lord and I'm seeing him as king. So it's important. He's saying I'm seeing him, but he's saying it right after something that we could easily read over. It's kind of like a throwaway intro sentence. In the, king, in the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So it's not just important that he's seeing the Lord, it's when he's seeing the Lord that is so critical to us understanding why this is important. Because Uzziah was one of the great kings of Israel. Like if you were charting out the good kings like David or Solomon, Uzziah might be like right there underneath those guys. Because I said this, I think, last week, kings, if you go read the book of Kings, it's like one good king for like every 15 crummy ones, Right? So Uzziah was actually a really good king. He stumbles kind of at the end of his reign, but all in all, he was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, and he's just died. 
And his dying would have been a huge, significant thing for the nation of Israel. It would have been like the death of a beloved head of state. We have a hard time kind of quantifying this. Like it would be like a president dying, or like if you, some of you were alive when Princess Diana died, and you remember how like the world came to stop. Why? Because she represented something beautiful and powerful and good in the world, and people were wrecked by it. People who didn't even know her were wrecked by it, right? Well, that's what was happening with Uzziah's death. Because Uzziah, he was kind of this last beacon of light for Israel as a leader. He was the last really good king that Israel had. And Israel was starting to slide into this kind of national spiritual decline, spiritual death of sorts. And so his death was really a window into the picture of the state of things for Israel. Things were, oh, we kind of got this guy still but man, things are getting dark. And when he dies, it was like the lights went out. And things were only going to get darker. And so Isaiah, having this moment of seeing the Lord on a throne, in a temple, with this giant train, which would have been, again, we don't do this when we inaugurate somebody, but back in the day when a king became a king, he would have had all these like special garb that he would wear in this giant train that he would actually proceed in to become king. What's happening right now is this is not just coincidental timing. Uzziah died and then all of a sudden I had this vision. Oh, huh, that's interesting. That's not what's happening. It's the sovereign Lord showing in this moment that although Israel is, is kingless, I get it, you're leaderless right now, what God is reminding Isaiah is he's saying the real king of Israel is still on the throne. And I'm going to show you that not in just some little way, right? I'm not just kind of like, hey, kind of, you know, like Elijah, like, let me whisper, like, hey, I know you're afraid, but the real king's still out there. No. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of arguments about why God does certain things with certain people in Scripture. But for Isaiah, he had to be shown like this, like literally a celestial window, just a glimpse, right? We don't know how long this lasted. A celestial window being opened where he sees the Lord. And John, the gospel of John would say, he sees the pre-incarnate Jesus. He sees Jesus on the throne, right? That's what Isaiah is seeing. He sees the real king of kings, the Lord, in all of his glory. He gets that window like, holy cow, Right? And the seraphim, this is the only time in all of Scripture these creatures are actually mentioned. One place in all of Scripture, these seraphim, these six-winged creatures, I mean, it's kind of crazy thinking about it. One of you kids draw a six-winged creature for us while we're doing this? Six-winged creatures who have to cover their eyes and cover their feet, and there's all sorts of theology in there about why in the world they're doing that, or people speculating about why they have to do that. They can't see and be in the presence of the Lord without having to cover themselves in some form or fashion because his radiance and his goodness and his holiness, which we're going to talk about here in a second, it's too much. And they're singing so loud that the temple is literally shaking and the smoke machine's on, right? I mean, it's like a rock concert. I've been, uh, the closest thing I could think of was when I went to see U2 in Dublin. At Crook Park, 100,000 liquid-enhanced Irish people. A <laughs> hundred thousand of them. I know y'all, some of you have seen you too. You haven't seen you too. I've seen you too. Kidding. They're great everywhere, but man. I mean, the place, 
you know, when the, when the streets have no name or Sunday, bloody Sunday, imagine 100,000 people hammered, <laughs> screaming out every lyric to every single song, and the, literally the place felt like it was going to fall apart. It was so intense. And that, that's literally like, like us putting on a little record compared to what's happening right now. The temple is shaking and smoking, and it's not just that it's shaking and smoking, because that's a powerful thing, but it's what they're singing. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory over and over and over. Sunday, bloody Sunday, holy, 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 right? They're singing it. When you say something three times, <laughs> why do you say it three times? Like, mm, man, that was good. I mean, that was good. That was good, right? That was so good. We say things and we repeat things, and so did the Hebrews for repetition, right? Because we really want people to understand this is what's going on. This is a super superlative. It's like when you graduated college, not me, but when you graduated college, and I graduated college, but if you graduated college, summa cum laude, right? Except it would be summa, summa, summa instead of summa cum laude. Literally, it's like a huge super superlative about the holiness, the moral purity, proclaiming his perfection. That's what's happening right now. What's important about that is, is this is the only place in Scripture where three things in repeat like that are said about God. God is never called love, love, love. He's never called mercy, mercy, mercy. He's never called grace, grace, grace. For some reason, when, you, when you're literally seeing Jesus for who He truly is, the God for who He truly is, this is the thing, the holiness of God that, that the seraphim cannot stop crying out about to the place to where the temple shook. He's holy. And when Isaiah sees it, he's wrecked at the sight because he's seeing the Lord for who he truly is and he's seeing himself for who he truly is. He's reduced literally to nothing at this point. He sees himself clearly. He sees the Lord clearly. He's exposed. I mean, he's confessing his sin here. I'm a man of unclean lips, right? A prophet was somebody who used their mouth. And he's saying, man, my, my lips are not even, even close to being in a place to speak your name. To the point to where he, he says, woe is me. Woe is literally like calling down a curse on yourself. He's saying, before you, I, I'm wrecked. I'm cursed. Because I'm seeing you clearly. Some of you used to have the t-shirt. I, I never had it, no judging but Jesus is my homeboy, right? This is the moment where you do the Hulk Hogan and you tear the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt off. But Isaiah is saying, Jesus is not my homeboy. I mean, he's my friend and, and he's my great father and my good father, but ultimately, he's not my homeboy. He's wholly other. He's completely other. He's holy. One commentator said it like this, this is not humanity in the presence of divine power. There was power going on. This is the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. It's not just he's powerful, he's pure. So for us, I'm going to ask us some questions along the way. How do you know if you've seen the king? How do you know? One of the best evidences is what we see here with Isaiah, and it's this. 
we've all, if you've seen the king, you've had a moment in your life, many, maybe hopefully more than one, where you actually say some version of what Isaiah is saying here. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I, I, I have unclean lips. And let me tell you, and we'll get to this. He's not showing you that to shame you. He's showing you that to actually set you free from believing that you have clean enough lips to do what he's called you to do. He's saying it's not about your cleanliness. It's about mine. It's not about your holiness. It's about mine. Because it would have been real easy. I mean, when you get picked to be prophet, I know it's not a great job, but you still have the inside track, right, to God. Like you're, you're seeing and hearing things that no one else is seeing. So it would have been real easy for Isaiah to actually believe I'm better than the people that I'm going to. That was one of the prophet's great struggles, right? Because he says there, I'm of unclean lips, but I'm also with a people amongst a people of unclean lips. What is he saying there? I, I'm not comparing myself to the other Israelites to get my sense of my holiness anymore. I'm comparing myself to the Lord, and compared to the Lord, I'm not. We all have fallen short. And the Lord's saying, you got to see this. you got to see my holiness before I send you. i got to humble you before you're ready to go. So he sees the Lord. Secondly, when he sees the Lord, what happens? Now, this is the whole gospel right here in the middle of the Old Testament. So for some of you who believe that, like, I don't get it. Like, God in the Old Testament seems a certain way, and God in the New Testament seems a certain way. There's one God in the whole Bible. And he's acting this way in the Old Testament. Because when he gets seen by the king, what was a king's job? A king's job in those days oftentimes was to basically hear cases of right and wrong, of sin, of bad, and to render judgments or verdicts, right? That was a king's job. But how does the king treat Isaiah here? It's clear I'm holy and you're not holy. It's clear that you've got sin in your life and I have no sin, Right? And what does Scripture say? Scripture says the wages of sin is what? Death, right? So Isaiah had, seeing the Lord and seeing himself clearly, had every reason to believe, man, this is the end. This is the end for me. And yet, the Lord doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't put him to death. Instead, what he does is he provides what he says there in verse 7, atonement for your guilt and for your sin. The seraphim flies forth from the altar with this hot coal and he touches his mouth and he says, I'm going to atone for your sin. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What is that all about? Real quick, Old Testament history lesson. I'm sorry. There's a ton in here. I could preach a hundred sermons on this one text. The, the altar was the place where in the Old Testament, when you made a sacrifice, when the priest went and made a sacrifice, a perfect spotless lamb was slain and the blood was thrown on the altar for the atonement for sin. The altar was the place of judgment for sin and mercy given by a bloodless sacrifice. So what is the Lord displaying in this action of this hot coal coming and touching Isaiah is this. We have a holiness gap. I am holy and you are not holy right? But guess what? You can't close the gap. I've got to come to you because you are ruined. You are cursed without what I do for you. But I'm not going to leave things there, and I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to fly to you. I'm going to come to you and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. 
I'm going to reach out to you and I'm going to touch you. And it's going to be what I do that removes your sin and your guilt. I think it's really interesting, this is a little bit of a side point, that he actually touches the very part of Isaiah's body that Isaiah deems unclean. All right? He touches his mouth like... He could have come out and said, like, here's a crown, your sin's atoned for. Here's a robe, your sin's atoned for. You know, here's a ring, let's put it on your finger, your sin's atoned for. Why does he touch his mouth? Now, I can't entirely prove this, but I'm going to wager a suggestion. That every single one of us has a place in our lives, whether it's a place that is coming out of our shame or coming out of our pride, a place in our life where we basically feel like when God has shown me myself for who I truly am. There's either sin in my past, there's an ongoing struggle that I have going on, there's addiction in my life, there's some sin that marks my life that when I see that clearly, I say, I'm unclean. We can't. There's distance between us. And I actually believe that God touches that part of Isaiah to basically say this, the very place where you feel most unclean, the very place where you feel most unqualified, I'm coming for that place. I'm coming to reverse the curse in that place of your life. I'm coming to touch that uncleanliness, and I'm going to take that on myself and give you my holiness. That's what literally 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be what? Called the righteousness of God. I'm going to come to that place that you know that you see that's the unclean place in my life, whether that's something I've done in my sin or even the pride that I try to get my identity through doing something for God. I'm going to come to that place and I'm going to touch you there. And in your unholiness, I'm going to give you my holiness. In your unrighteousness, I'm going to give you my righteousness. In your unloved state, I'm going to give you my love. So he sees the Lord, but what he sees when he sees the Lord is he sees a king that saves, right? The point here is this, Isaiah does nothing, nothing. He does nothing except receive salvation from the king, right? Because the the king sees him in all of his uncleanliness, and he says, guess what? I'm not going to put you to death. I'm going to save you because I've actually got something for you to do too. You're not just saved from your sin. You're saved to something, right? Right? So now, after all that experience, you've seen me clearly for who I am. You've seen yourself clearly for who you are. You've seen that I'm here to save you, not destroy you. Now you're ready for the question, whom shall I send for us? He's ready for the question because he's finally ready to be sent by the king. Like I was thinking about this. It's funny, Isaiah doesn't say, hey, there were a bunch of other people with me when I had this vision, and then the Lord was like, hmm, whom shall I send, right? It's just Isaiah and the Lord, right? This isn't like in kickball when it's down to the last kid, and you're like, uh, you know, trying to decide who I'm going to pick, right? It's just Isaiah and the Lord. But he's trying to bring Isaiah to a place where not he's as king saying, hey, Isaiah, I don't I've got the power to send you. I don't need to ask you this question. I don't need your compliance. But I'm going to ask you, why? Because I want you to be at a place when I send you where you willingly say this, here I am. Send me. I'm actually excited and joyful and willing to go 
And what God is displaying by asking this question after all of that is this, I am after your heart in what I'm calling you into. I'm after your heart in what I'm calling you into, not just your compliance. I don't just want your obedience. I want your willingness. I want your heart to be surrendered, captured by my love and by my mercy, because many of us, we're not going to be sent to do what Isaiah is doing, but I, I can... There is no way I'm not right about this. All of you are going to be sent into something this week you don't want to go do. No question. Probably by the end of this day, maybe, maybe by the, before you walk out of the parking lot today, you're going to have to deal with something you don't want to deal with. And he's saying, I'm not just asking for your obedience or your compliance. I'm trying to get a hold of your heart. And I want you to go into that not in pride, but in humility, because Isaiah had this experience. He realized, I need the grace and forgiveness of God no different than the people that I'm going to, right? I need atoned for, not just them. We all need it. And so the Lord, in His goodness and in His holiness, He's saying, I'm going to deal with your heart, Isaiah, before I ever send you as an ambassador to deal with the heart of my people. Let me deal with you. So for us, I'll close with this. How do you hear that question? Whom shall I send for us? Because, yeah, Isaiah, he had a unique call. He was a unique guy in a unique time in redemptive history, right? None of you have to be worried about whether you're called to be an apostle or a prophet today. I'll just clear your conscience on that one, okay? But... Jesus said this about you and me in John 20. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then the Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples. All authority and power is given to me. I'm king and I'll go and be with you even to the end of the age. I'm with you. I'm king and I'm with you, but go. I am sending you and you are being sent. I am being sent this afternoon, tomorrow at work, with your family, when your kids go to school, wherever you're going, you and I are being sent literally like Isaiah to be a billboard of God's grace and God's truth to a world that may not want to hear it. And so we go what? Not with a hammer. Here's the truth. We go humble, right? Because we know, like Isaiah, I wouldn't have come to the conclusions I came to because I'm just as hard-hearted and stiff-necked as everybody else, right? We go humble because we need the very thing we're talking about. So would you dare to believe, and would you wrestle with that question, whom shall I send, but would you wrestle with it believing God wants to take you, like Isaiah, through a process? And here's the process, because we're all obsessed with what should I do, what should I do? What, what am I supposed to do? What's God's will for my life? How should he call me? Let me just tell you, it always starts by going through what Isaiah went through first. First is this, I want to show you who I am. Most of us are interested in what he wants to do, less interested in seeing him for who he truly is. Once you see him for who he truly is, and you get in touch with the salvation and are restored to the joy of your salvation, where he sends you stops not only mattering as much to you, but you'll see it clearly. I, I bet on it. So would you dare to ask the Lord and choose to contemplate his glory? Because we have a much clearer, fuller picture this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus as to what God has done for us. 
Would you contemplate his holiness and his goodness to you? Would you allow him to humble your heart, right? Because he's not trying to shame your heart. If you're, let me just tell you, if you think you're looking at Jesus and you feel shame, you're not looking at Jesus. I'll say that again. If when you look at Jesus and he looks back at you, you feel ashamed, you're not looking at Jesus. He wants to humble your heart. He doesn't want to shame your heart. He's saying, I want to naturally bring you back low to where you should be. And I want to move you from a place of living your life. Because when I was reflecting on this, I thought, you know what? Most of my life, I try to live getting people to say, holy, holy, holy about me. The whole earth is filled with my glory. And he's saying, I'm trying to humble you so that you can actually be somebody who is now sent into wherever I'm sending you, whatever sphere of life, so that you can say, holy, holy, holy is he. And, and my life and his life is simply lived as a display for his glory. Because guess what? My sin, it doesn't disqualify me from the call of God. My sin is what qualifies me. I needed Jesus. I needed his holiness. I'm not trying to be holy. He's holy. And he can be holy through me, right? I don't need to justify myself. He justifies me. And so I'm sent now to actually be a billboard of that grace and that truth of the holiness of God, the true picture of who he is and will be for all of eternity. So have you seen the king? Have you seen him? Have you been touched by his salvation, by his grace? And to the degree that we see him and that we're saved by him, we're restored to the joy of our salvation, we actually begin to become those people who willingly say, send me. Send me wherever you want to send me. I don't care. Send me because I understand you were sent for me. You came for me. Your blood was the blood on that altar that atoned for my sin and my guilt. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I ask uh, humbly because I know that no words of mine or no efforts of our own can make us see you clearly. I pray that you would show yourself to us. And Lord, I know and I'm thankful that um, you don't show us yourself to shame us uh, for our sin. You know what sin's done to us. You show us yourself because you're, you're trying to draw us unto yourself and humble us, Lord, that we might receive, we might receive that hot coal <laughs> of your salvation and that you might Release us from a life of trying to atone, prove, and justify ourselves to you and to one another so that we actually can get free enough to be sent by you into whatever you're calling us to. And Lord, like Isaiah, just forgive us, man. I, I equate your call with all the things the world celebrates. If it's going a certain way, if it looks a certain way, and Lord, oftentimes your call looks very different than what the world celebrates. Give us eyes and ears and a heart to see that to follow you is a downward thing. And yet, Lord, uh, the promises that come with you uh, promise us a glory and a peace and a goodness uh, that nothing we could do in this life or on this earth could ever give us. Set us free and send us in your name. Amen.